Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be here today. We are thankful to know you, the one true God, the living God. Thank you so much that you care about us, that you love us. We are so thankful to be saved. God, I would pray that you would help us to remember that we have been purchased with blood every day of the week, not just Sundays. God, I would pray that you'd help us to respond to people in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. God, because that's what will draw people to you. We know that you use us as ambassadors to draw people to you. And so I pray that you'd help us to be those that would be a light in this darkness. We're so thankful today to have your word and it's available and we do not have to meet in, in hiding, um, but we get to meet publicly like this and we can hear from your word. So we pray that you'd help us now take advantage of that time as we hear from you in Christ's name. Amen. And good morning. So thankful that uh, during the summer months, I know many of you are taking the time to take uh, some breaks away for family and vacation, but look how full the congregation is here, that in the summer you all still come back for Sunday so that we might be blessed by the Word of God. So I'm really thankful to see you all here. I want to make sure to uh, review a couple more announcements. You'll see a card in your bulletin that talks about serving. Be praying about how you'll serve this coming fall. We will continue to have our group connect, which will be uh, at the end of August and beginning of September. And those two Sundays will be reserved for considering what type of growth group, small group study, men's and women's discipleship, most excellent way, what type of way that you can participate as a student, as a disciple. But this is especially um, a time that we want you to be thinking about how you're gonna serve in the fall. And so take a look at the card. Talk to Pete as we are looking for servants in a variety of areas, especially children's ministries. Um, and so would you consider that? And also, if you look at your bulletin, we are taking um, the opportunity this summer to do several um, breakout sessions Sunday evening. Take a look in the back of your notes. Sunday evening sessions. And so this uh, is the first one this evening. And if you'll meet with us at 5 o'clock in the chapel, we'll be looking at the family frenzy, holiness in an age of competing demands. You're going to really want to be there this evening. Not only will there be a teaching time, uh, but Pastor Justin and I and uh, my wife Laura and Pastor Matt will be uh, addressing um, what is it that God desires as we as families are pursuing holiness, but with all of the competing demands of our current age? And so it's an opportunity to answer some of the questions that hopefully you guys have been sending in. Take a look at the next two weeks. We'll skip a week because Dr. Jim Cece will be here, and that'll be next week when we have the Lord's Supper at 5 o'clock, and he will be sharing with us. But then in July 22nd and the 29th, you'll see family and sexuality, biblical sexuality in an age of no boundaries. And July 29th, family and technology, intimacy with God in an age of technological idolatry. So those titles should pique your interest because those titles and those topics are actually ones that we have had you request as you've asked questions in a variety of settings wherever you're at that you've been presenting questions to us as shepherds. But also these are the things that we are seeing that are vital that we answer from God's word in our current day and age. And so they're very interesting topics, but they're also very practical. Notice that you can still submit questions for our next Q&A session, and that even means this evening. 
If you didn't realize it, we have been uh, giving you an opportunity in this last week with uh, Dr. Lyle and now these next few Sundays to put your questions in there. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to address those questions. We're going to group them together and summarize them so that we can uh, address as many as possible, as well as what we think is really important information for you all. Um, and so make sure that you take a look at that. You can put your questions there. And even there is time for this evening if you didn't realize that. But you need to get them in quick so that then we can take a look at them and be a little organized to respond to them. Okay? And so with that, um, the final thing would be Tuesday evening, ladies. Uh, the uh, Ruth study for ladies will resume, and you'll see that in your bulletin. And that'll be at 6.30 on Tuesday evening. And it's been fun for me to greet you ladies each week uh, as Laura's teaching there. And it's been a great turnout. So I encourage you to invite your friends and that you would once again join us for Tuesday's Roots Bible Study. And let's pray together and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word that is very clear. We thank you that we can come to your word with humility, but also that we can state things with conviction and with conviction, we should not forget that with our conviction should be with compassion. And I pray that this morning we would see that you are a loving God, but you are a God that has presented to us your heart matter, your heart wish for modern-day marriage and where we go for companionship. In Jesus' name, amen. So where do I go for companionship, modern marriage? It has already been brought up to my attention this morning that this can be a very controversial topic right now in our current church, at large, the church in America, as well as in our society, right? But I want you to know that I'm actually really excited to address this topic. This is something that Laura and I have been committed to for many years, not only in our personal marriage of 26 years, but also in our ministry as biblical counselors, that we are passionate and we are at the same time concerned about marriage. And as I approach this topic, there could be a variety of responses that you might have even in your heart and your mind right now. And so I want to put you all at ease. Whatever current status that you come to us this morning, whether you're single whether you're in marriage and your marriage is struggling or you're thriving, perhaps you've experienced divorce, perhaps you've experienced uh, the issue and the reality of same-sex attraction, there is a place here for you at Salem Heights Church. The Word of God clearly presents to us that the gospel is a transforming truth that through the gospel message and through the Holy Spirit, that we are not only all in need of transformation, but we can all experience that transformation. And when I bring up a topic like modern marriage, we can think of a variety of things that we hear about in our media, whether it's in print, whether it's online, whether it's in movies. I don't think we have taken the Bible seriously at time, though, and understand what it means when a sinner marries a sinner. Do you think about that? I don't know that we've always taken seriously as believers now when a sinner marries another sinner. I want to go to a portion of Scripture that we're going to go to. It's just one verse, and we're going to come back to it at the very end. And if you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The specific context of this verse right here isn't specifically about marriage. It's about all of us before Christ, and it's all about 
us that have placed our faith in Christ. It's about us in Christ as well. And it's never more important that we would understand this biblical truth and principle than when we come together as a man and a woman in marriage. And it states, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might not, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That we might no longer live for ourselves. And it's never more important within the context of marriage and the relationships that we have. And I think what we really need to do is we really, irregardless of what's going on in the culture, really need to take a look at what's going on in the church, what's really going on in modern families that are professing believers that have come together. And would we consider what truly is then biblical companionship? Take a look at your introduction. I don't think we have taken the Bible seriously in understanding what it means when a sinner marries a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus came so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. And it's never more difficult and challenging than sometimes in marriage, right? Here's what this means. The DNA of sin is selfishness. That means that sin in its fundamental form is antisocial because I care more about me than I do anyone else. So I want to take a little journey also in our 26 years of marriage, as Laura and I have experienced it. We were married for probably about uh, two weeks. We got back from the honeymoon. We had a one-bedroom apartment down in Northern California, and um, Laura went uh, to perform her wifely duty of grocery shopping. <laughs> right? Wifely duty. Now, you can already tell that I've got some thinking errors there. I was 21 going on 22. Um, she was 22, so she's older than me, okay? <laughs> and um, I had been living with three other guys in an apartment in which we seldom cleaned the bathroom. We always watched uh, ESPN and never missed a Blazer game. And back then it was Nintendo, and we were masters at Tech Mobile. Okay, some of you guys don't even know what that is now. It's a football game. Very complex. <laughs> Not very complex. Graphics were terrible. And in this apartment, we, um, we ate many processed foods. The healthiest thing that we ate would be a Subway sandwich. Beyond that, everything was in the freezer, frozen, and could quickly be prepared. And so now in my mind, my wife, performing her wifely duties two weeks into marriage, went grocery shopping. And she came home with wonderful, healthy fruits and vegetables and things that were designed for my nutrition in mind. I'm not opposed to those type of things. But when I opened up the the freezer, there were no chimichangas. There were no frozen pot pies. There was no top ramen in the cupboard. And there were no fat boy double stuffed ice cream sandwiches. 
And of course, every biblical Christian wife would know that she should be thinking of her husband and should have already read my mind. And in addition to the fruits and vegetables, those things should have been in the freezer. So that was our first disagreement. Okay, it was a fight. We had been brought up to understand that within the Christian home and Christian marriage that our emphasis should be loving one another unconditionally. We've heard sermons about that. We've understood that Christ is that example. But the DNA of sin is selfishness, and it never more reveals itself than in modern marriage. That means that sin, is its fundamental form, is antisocial. And, and it says then in the introduction, I shrink my world down to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. That means that I will reduce the people in my life to vehicles or obstacles. I'm going to get there to accomplish that, or it's going to be an obstacle. And at that point, Laura, in my mind, was the vehicle towards happiness in marriage, but she was also the obstacle because she wasn't doing it the way I thought she should do it. If you, if you help me get what I want, I love you cards and flowers, wonderful. If you stand in the way of what I want, I am spontaneously irritated and angry. Now think about it. Who has that conversation with couples going into marriage? We talk a little bit about sex, a little bit about finances, and a little bit about roles, a little bit about communication, but those aren't the cause of our problems. And it's not uncommon for couples to come in times of trouble and say, Pastor Carl, we need help communicating. And I would say, yes, you do, but that's not your core issue. Those are the locations of the problems. The cause is this selfishness. So marriage by design. Let's take a look. Go to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to address some things that oftentimes to us, as we continue to study Scripture, and if we've spent some time in church, seem to be obvious. But within the greater church in the United States, we are often debating these foundational and fundamental principles but then with outside of the church, in our culture, these truths are rejected. Marriage is by design. God designed and declared marriage. God designed companionship. Between a man and a woman, the intentional design of God for marriage included the unique female and male relationship. So let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Adam isn't alone in the sense that he has no companionship. He has companionship with God. The problem is we as humans cannot relate to God in a sufficient way because we're not God. And so in the sense that there is a mutual exchange of love, a mutual exchange of companionship, support, and building one another up, it would always be lopsided with us and God. He would always feed into more of us than we could ever give back to him. So he designed that then 
there would be a helper that was made and fit. And when we look at that term, we often view that term from a cultural perspective, and I want to talk about that too. We look at it from what we at times call traditionalism, and I'll address that in a minute. This is not about traditionalism. This is about a complementary relationship. That's the term. A complementary relationship that does bring companionship, but it's more than that. And so he says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, now pay attention in verse 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Or has that traditionalism, if you look at it as a tradition, now become irrelevant and invalidated? Not if you believe the words of Jesus. Because in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 6, Jesus says, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when we go to the words of Scripture, we need to make a decision. Do I... Accept the authority and the clarity of the Word of God. It doesn't mean that we always live it and perfectly apply it, but do I accept it? Understanding that whether or not you and I accept it, it still is the stated authority, clear Word of God. So what would we affirm then? We would affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenant, It's a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. And we're going to take a look at that in Ephesians chapter 5. But then by stating that truth, it naturally now denies something as well. And we now, as teachers of the Word of God, as leaders within a local church that is bigger than just Salem, are often now required to answer the question, when you affirm that, what are you denying? We deny that God has designed a marriage to be homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. So I covered that technical part, but did you get the ending part? We deny that it is just a contract versus a covenant. And I would say that within most churches that are Bible-based and preaching and teaching the Word of God, the issue is not whether or not we agree with godly-designed 
genders and roles within marriage. But here is what we do. We struggle to live out a covenant versus a contract. What are you saying, Carl? Well, you know a contract. A contract is an agreement by two individuals, and that contract is put into paper, and we sign it, and it basically does this. If you meet your obligations and your words here, I contract with you to keep my obligations in line two, three, and four. If you fail to keep the contract, then I am no longer obligated to keep my word. But that's not how God designed marriage. First of all, God is the perfect covenant maker. When he makes a commitment to humanity, he keeps it perfectly and unconditionally, and that's the model. But we understand that we're not God. But when we live on a contractual basis, basically what I'm saying is the world, and especially my marriage, revolves around me versus around the Word of God and the example of Jesus. So within this marriage, there are specific roles within the relationship. Ephesians chapter 5, if you would take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, a portion of Scripture that oftentimes is really avoided within even church settings. It's avoided because there's language here that oftentimes we do not understand correctly and we don't get the emphasis and thrust here. Would I dare to read Ephesians chapter 5 and 22 and verse 33 on the steps of the Capitol building? But that's not the issue. I'm more concerned with would we dare to live our lives like this within the boundaries of our marriages, in our churches, in our homes, and in our relationships. And if you're not married today, these principles still apply between you and the living God that is Jesus. Would you live in complementary submission to him? Let's read. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the... The church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, notice this statement again, straight out of Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I'll stop there because we're going to need to really focus on verse 32. You see, oftentimes within the culture, we stop at that term subject in verse 22. And now we have no tolerance within the culture for what seems to be the biblical view of marriage. 
And then within our churches, we as men and women now begin to apply that truth in a way that turns off the intended purpose, which is to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus in marriage. Who, although Jesus is God, he himself is the first example of submission as he submits to the will of the Heavenly Father. And although he is God, for his bride, the church, he dies for his bride in a way that perfectly meets the needs of all of us who he understands are helpless in a state of sin without the cross. So there are specific roles within the relationship. We use terms like complementarian. And the idea behind complementarianism is a term that needs to be understood. The word complementarity doesn't appear in the Bible, but is used by people to summarize a biblical concept. The concept of male and female complementarity can be seen from Genesis all the way through Revelation. The term is derived from a word that is complement, which means that something that completes or makes perfect, either of the two parts or things needing to complete the whole. Complementarity believes that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. And so when we see that it's man that is made in God's image, that we are image bearers. And that Adam on his own could not bear the perfect image of a heavenly God without his helper. And that she could not bear the image of a holy God without her helper. Male and female are complementary counterparts in reflecting this glory. And then having these two sexes expands the view. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way, male and female, in relationship which reflects the truth about who Jesus is. And as imperfect beings, we couldn't do it on our own. Notice this is before the fall. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve, without sin present, could not bear the image of God in all of its glory. So it's important that we clarify some things. Complementarity doesn't mean traditionalism. Oftentimes we come to the marriage and we go, oh, well, yeah, we believe in traditional values. The traditions of what generation? Ask yourself, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. If we go based upon traditionalism, then we'll begin to modify our view and our living out of modern-day marriage versus going to the Word of God and saying, how does this apply to my heart, to my life, as a saved but fallen sinner married to another sinner? How do you now desire to transform us in and through marriage in a way that manifests the glory of God? So it's not traditionalism. Also, it is not a privileged hierarchy. It isn't because she's some kind of heavenly sidekick that woman, a woman is less than a man. 
And we have to be really careful with that because when we think through traditionalism, oftentimes that is what is identified because we as human beings desire to what? Place ourselves on the throne and we will never more want to do that than within the context of marriage. And so, not on our second fight because it was about 10 years later. We had little kids and I remember it very clearly because I like to cook. And I am a recipe guy. You start off with the recipe and then you doctor it up. But you must have a recipe. And then once you get good at the recipe, then you start switching things based upon taste. But you start with the recipe. And it was on an occasion that Pastor Ron had had open heart surgery that he had specific dietary requirements after five bypasses and things like that. And we were asked to bring a meal to Pastor Ron and to Lorna. And so I came home, and there was a meal on the stove, and it smelled good, but I asked her what it was, and she described that it was some type of chicken soup. And I said, well, what recipe did you use in a condescending way? Laura's style is to just get a pot, get ingredients, and start chucking them in there. And what I've learned in 26 years, it always ends up being really tasty. But at that given point, I was so focused on, this is a meal for Pastor Ron and Lord. This has to be really good. He's been sick. You know, what's he going to think about, you know, if we don't bring a good meal to him? And you didn't use a recipe? Well, no, I just put things together and it's rather tasty. Do you want to try it? Well, it tastes good, but you didn't follow a recipe. Now, think about this, guys. <laughs> Who am I placing on the throne right now? Now, of course, I was maybe just frustrated, not angry. And, um, yeah, frustrated, right? And, of course, I wouldn't use inappropriate words, but I might be um, abusive in my speech. You know, I don't use inappropriate words, but I'm still abusive with my speech because it's condescending, it's controlling, it's judgmental. It's asserting a hierarchy that says, as the leader and head of my home, it should be done this way, and that is not biblical headship. So what are we saying? We do not believe that men as a group rank higher than women. Men are not superior to women. Women are not the second sex. Men have a responsibility to exercise headship in their homes and church family. Now listen to this. And Christ revolutionized the definition of what that means. Authority is not the right to rule. It's the responsibility to serve. But then Christ provides the example as then now the husband and the wife in complementarity serve one another so that we might be able to manifest the glory of God and that without each other, it's just not going to happen. So what does the world say is the purpose of marriage? Well, they're pursuing different things, and one of the things that I read this week was, as I was studying here, is what is the purpose of marriage in modern American society? Great question. 
Honestly, in modern American society, it really seems to only provide, one, a legal end-of-life representation. At least one of the partners will have someone who can legally decide one's fate after being put in a vegetative state. It provides a party that will concern him or herself with the other's funeral arrangements. And, of course, there's the money. There's the inheritance. Then it makes a comment. Religious people still get married for religious reasons. But they're not indicative of America as a whole. Sure, some people will say it represents their love for one another. But seriously... It's unnecessary to get married in this age to express love. Love can be expressed between two people regardless of whether they tie the knot or not. Oh, another person said, marriage is all about having children and the inheritance that the kids will get. Basically, who's the next king? By default, if you are married, your wife and children get your stuff. If there is no wife, then your stuff is up for grabs by all your greedy relatives. And so when we come to marriage and we place ourselves on the throne, we fail to see and understand that we've missed the purpose of the godly designed complementary marriage. Church, not society now. We really need to examine not just our view, but how are we living out marriage in our homes, in our churches? How are we modeling for the next generation? And if you're not married or you're hoping to be, how, even in a single state, can you manifest the glory of God as a godly man or woman within the body of Christ, out in society? How can we be ones that are committed to the word of God in a compassionate way? And how can we be ones that what we say is how we live? So what's the issue then? The problem is we live for self. We live in this contract versus covenant way of living. We live for self in a way that says, within marriage, within my relationships, if you do what I want you to, then I might keep my end of the agreement. Marriage is meant to demonstrate Christ's sacrificial and unconditional love for his bride, putting on display his nature and his character. Marriage, then, is a training ground for practicing Christ-likeness in our own relationships in a way that reflects Christ's. When we live this way, we experience all that the marriage relationship was designed to accomplish. So the problem is we live for self, our kingdom, and we want to rule and reign. It is never clearer when we read James, James Chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the issue that brings conflict into marriage and all relationships is this overemphasis of my desires and my passions. Oh, you know, in 26 years, Laura and I have gotten a lot better, or should I say refined, in our conflict. I don't react the way that I used to in those first two examples. Nor do we have conflict about those type of things as often. More recently, the conflict that we had was about how she said something. What? Yeah, actually, I agreed with what she said, and it was actual wisdom, and I just needed to go along with it because it was wise. But I didn't like how she said it. So we had a fight about how she said something because it was not said in a supposedly respectful way. Or was it just that I was being hard-headed and she needed to repeat herself more than one time? (laughs) Men, do you understand that we are supposed to submit one to another? And do you understand that there are some times where I am ignorant and cannot be wise unless Laura shares to me her perspective on things from a feminine perspective or even from Scripture because the Lord works in her through the Holy Spirit and Word of God in the same dynamic, transforming way that He works in my life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. So then, for the love of Christ controls us. The solution then is, are you ready? Death to self. The solution is death to self. The solution is death to your will that is pursuing your pleasures, your kingdom making, your elevation of self, it is humility exampled by Jesus who loves his bride so much that he died for the bride. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. You and I are to die to self. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Essentially, a complementarian view is one that believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary Truths about Jesus. If you hear someone tell you that as a complementarian, it means you have to get married, have a dozen babies, be a stay-at-home mom, clean toilets, completely forego a career, chuck your brain at the door, 
because you can't think or that you must say yes, sir, no, sir to everything that husband or wife says, then you and I have the wrong view of marriage. But in marriage, when we stick to the way that God designed it, in complementarity now comes, oh, what we've been looking for, companionship. And companionship is more than just about being comfortable and having my needs met. Companionship is living out the best Jesus towards my wife or my husband so that they would be built up into Christ, that they might manifest his glory. And it could also mean that sometimes in married life, it's hard. Sometimes in parenting, it's challenging. Sometimes with the finances, it's a test. Sometimes with our communication, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Who those are who in Christ Jesus, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So then, where do you go for your purpose? What do you pursue for your companionship? Is it things, ideas, pastimes, rights, wants, expectations? In what way does your marriage reflect the character of God? And in what ways are you putting into practice dying to self in your marriage? These are exciting things. And if you found yourself in a state in which you are struggling in marriage, we're here to shepherd as ones that, what, are struggling through marriage just like you. Oh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Justin and I can tell you some really good stories about flying egg sandwiches and locking the keys in the car. Because, of course, I would never do something like lock the keys in the car. But when you have a forgetful wife, she might. And how can you deal with your wife harshly and not use bad words but the wrong attitude? Oh, there's been many a time that I've done that. But in Christ, we could live marriage abundantly. So what's your definition for modern marriage? Is it biblical? If you're looking forward to modern marriage, it's never more important and never the right time, more the right time, than in your premarital and in your preparation for marriage. Young people, start preparing now. Parents, adults, model, shepherd what the Lord desires to see in our marriage. And if we're going to have a, a response to our current society, let's make sure that within our churches and within our homes, we're living what we are aspiring to live as declared by the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the godly marriages, some of 50 and 60 years here in this congregation, and some marriages a day old, as there was a blessing of a marriage just yesterday in this building. We thank you for the way that you grow us through hard times, 
We thank you for your clearly declared word. And I pray that we would be ones that as we live what you have designed, that we would respond to those outside of the church, that we would respond to those that are struggling with compassion, that we would see that ultimately, if we are not living out the love of Christ, no truthful words are going to have any impact. That's hypocrisy. That if we would be judgmental towards others but can't live out Jesus with how we treat others, that that contradicts the way of Christ. And I pray that in our marriages we understand that, in our church, in our community. And I thank you that you have given us wonderful example of Jesus and other couples, even in this congregation and around us, that have lived many years of marriage in a way that manifests your glory, not as perfect people, but as transformed ones. In Jesus' name, amen.